you actually can build a billion dollar business in just South Africa. That's Kian Pillay. He's the co-founder and CEO of the South African payment startup, Stitch. Largely the story for African startups has been about market expansion. There's definitely a massive opportunity in being Pan-African, right? It's just stupid hard and it's gonna take you like 10, 15, 25 years. You guys have raised a $25 million Series A extension led by Ribbit Capital. Surprisingly found fit with enterprises, not with smaller companies. Why is that surprising? This is never our strategy. Our strategy was always, um, Today's guest is Kian Pillay, the co-founder and CEO of Stitch. My conversation with Kian comes on the heels of their recent fundraising announcement, a $25 million Series A extension led by the global fintech fund Ribbit Capital, which brings their total funding raised up over $50 million since the launch of the company in 2019. I've had an opportunity to watch Stitch's growth firsthand. They have an open and distinct company culture that I thought had a particular impact on Stitch's early growth their ability to recruit well in Cape Town, and their success in carving out an opportunity for themselves in a crowded fintech market in South Africa. In this episode, Kian and I talk about how they've gotten here, the intangibles of company building, their vision for the next generation of payments, and much more. This episode of The Flip is sponsored by MFS Africa. MFS Africa is the leading digital payments gateway, which connects over 320 million mobile wallets across over 600 cross-border corridors and in over 30 countries across the African continent. Throughout this season, we'll hear from the MFS Africa team about their work to create a borderless world. In today's episode, we're joined by Christian Brakira, MFS Africa's chief commercial officer, for a conversation about the company's prepaid card platform, GTP, which MFS Africa acquired in 2022. When you look at the global prepaid market, we are talking about a value of about $1.7 trillion as of 2019. We are seeing that market based on research move to $6.8 trillion, that is, by 2030. Now, specific to the Middle East and Africa, we are seeing a market that is going to evolve to about $100 billion by 2026. So one of the areas that has significantly grown over the past couple of years is strong demand by fintechs of virtual cards, right? And we've seen that just as much for financial institutions. And you're able to do that simply by tokenizing, for example, a card, whereby the, the user or a mobile phone subscriber would simply use their mobile wallet to still be able to transact, but now broadening the scope of services that they have access to. You would talk about perhaps maybe Spotify or maybe Netflix, who would have to have multiple entry points and integration points with, again, MNOs and others. Mm -hmm. Whereas by coming to MFS Africa and thereby interconnecting on the GTP platform, it is a single point of entry that gives them access to all of these use cases. So we have one of the largest fintechs in West Africa, for example, that has been able to onboard as many as 500,000 new customers, new customers mm -hmm. who were historically non-banked. Uh, onto their platform within, I would say, a year. But they were able to do so by leveraging our virtual solutions. So, Kian, we're breaking some news here, or at least the news will come out by the time this episode comes out that you guys have raised a $25 million Series A extension led by Ribbit Capital with participation from existing partners, PayPal Ventures, uh, Raba, and CRE, some friends of the flip. And it's $25 million on top of the $21 million Series A in February of this year. So I think a lot of people will want to hear about, you know, the story of that fundraise. But what's particularly interesting to me when you hear Series A extension is you think about in the market, market downturn, survival, all of these things. But 
you had inbound interest from tier one VCs and you guys weren't actually raising. So can you tell me a little bit about this round, the the, the decision to take money from Rivet, the decision to raise a Series A extension and why you uh, decided to take the money? We're in a fortunate time. Um, we still had good money in the bank and we were growing pretty fast. Um, we're lucky that we have good access and we've always known quite a few of the top tier VCs. And so I probably catch up with them maybe every five, every six months. And I think a lot of people have been sitting on their hands a little bit and been a little bit anxious to deploy any capital. And we had a lot of inbound interest. We weren't thinking about raising at all. Um, in fact, we potentially thought that we could get uh, to a really good spot uh, from a cash position with the money that we had in a bank. But uh, given sort of, I, I guess, the global economy and uh, I, I think where things are, I, I think I fall back on one of our investors uh, has three like exceptionally facetious things when speaking about money. One bullet is more money is better than less money. Second is money now is better than money later. And third is no company has ever gone out of business by having too much money in the bank. Mm. Um, so we had like really good access to great partners. It, uh, I think, was a, a great time to potentially take more money as a defensive move to like o- overly capitalize, but to allow us to be offensive. Right? We were, we were, you know, six months away from launching six new products. If any one of those kind of took off, we probably would have been in a fairly conservative place. We wouldn't have wanted to spend too much more capital to like accelerate those. Like this now gives us the chance if something is really taking off. We don't have to go to the market. We don't have to spend six months trying to raise more money, like to like deploy extra capital. We could just shoot right now and really take advantage. Where I think, you know, to be honest, a lot of our potential competitors or incumbents do the opposite. They'll be retreating a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And why Ribbit in particular? I know you had interest from a, a few different suitors, and ultimately you decided to go with them. We've known the Ribbit team for a long time. Um, we've probably known them for the last two years, like fairly early into our journey. Um, and I've always thought, well, one, obviously they have, they have a great reputation, but I personally thought their emerging market experience has sort of just been the best that I've seen empirically when kind of talking to, uh, I, I have tons of respect for uh, so many VCs, especially like their global experience and FinTech experience, but specifically like all the nasties that I think you get in emerging markets, you get political instability, currency downturns. I think they've just seen it mm. uh, and they've weathered it. And you know, o- over the last two years, we, we've really like come to appreciate how strong they are on those aspects. And secondly, actually, uh, they've been super helpful even you know just knowing them for the last two years. Uh, them not even being investors, we found they've been super useful in thinking through problems and in introductions in like product strategy, yeah. uh, just being on the sidelines. So it was a pretty easy decision for us. So I think we should say pretty explicitly that the interest that you had amongst investors to invest in a round that you weren't actually raising as a function of the fact that you guys have been growing really well in the past six months or, or a year, and, and certainly since you guys raised your A in February of last year. So can you talk first a little bit about that growth? And then I want to get into the weeds a bit more about what that growth means and you know investor interest in South Africa in particular. Yeah, so we launched a few products towards the beginning of last year. In about April of last year, we launched a tokenized recurring bank-to-bank product, which is a bit lofty, but it essentially allows you to use a bank account the same way you use, use a card. You could pay once off, subscription, recurring. And that was the first time I think we started to find really good fit in the market. And we surprisingly found fit with enterprises, not with smaller companies. Um, Why is that surprising? 
Um, this is never our strategy. Our strategy was always probably a little bit too romantic, but it was very like developer first, developer centric, yeah. like sell from the bottom, uh, like sell to startups and help startups grow in the market, um, which will always be important to us. Um, but I think one, the realization was surprising because we were not targeting enterprises, uh, right? There were like a few outbound efforts that we had without, you know, a huge amount of confidence any of them would shoot off. All of our like actual product build was sort of, you know, super developer centric. So it was trying to target people that would almost come self-serve. And then thirdly, I guess we sort of were surprised at the traction because we were expecting startup traction. We thought mm -hmm. it would be slower, right? And we thought, you know, you'll sign up 200 startups, 1,000 startups, and over time they will grow and they'll be large. Uh, whereas we got our first big enterprise customer and within month one, it was like a step change for the business. Within month two, step change again. And then we started like, you know, tacked on a few more enterprises and that forced us to like really scale up the way we looked at things. So that's been good, but a lot of like happy accidents there. Yeah. So why do you think then that the products and offerings that you've had have resonated so well with enterprises unexpectedly? I think weirdly, maybe the first piece is not even the products, it's uh, client service. Um, this is like a ridiculous thing to say, but I think largely there's still quite a big gap in terms of just like best in class customer service when it comes to enterprises and dealing with like payments infrastructure and payment like money movement in general. You know a little bit of this, but we always have like very, very strong approach when it's come to being like very, very in person with our customers, spending a lot of time with them. Our developers sit with their developers. We spend tons of time with their product people. And I think weirdly you don't get that with a lot of companies servicing enterprises still, in African markets at least. So I think actually first and foremost, client, client first, client centricity has been the most important thing mm -hmm. for us. And then I think we've been fortunate and we sort of launched at a time um, like, you know, uh, a little bit beyond wave one of some of like the, the fintech players and fintech infra, um, where we just like, this is a bit cheesy at this point, but we just built a bit more modular than other people. We're a little less cookie cutter and you can really just take slivers of what you want from us. We were like very easy to plug into like certain pieces of your stack, which is super necessary. There's not a single one of our, like there's a you know, great narrative around APIs. People just come, they'll build on top of it. It'll be great. And like, you never have to like service them in like a custom way. That's just like not true for enterprises, right? Mm -hmm. There's not a single one of our enterprises that uses like our products in the same way. Like mm -hmm. they're all completely different, completely custom. And I think like most people just can't do things like that. Small things make such a weird difference. Like being able to post pay your invoices you would not believe how important that is for enterprises right what a like silly trivial thing uh but like a lot of players just don't have that sort of like um flexibility to do things like that uh, and small things like that i think have compounded yeah. so can you talk a little bit about how you've had to orient stitch as a company and you know processes and building product around servicing enterprises and i think your growth is a function, obviously, of being able to now sell into these companies with massive payments volumes. But then at the same time, you guys are also expanding your suite of products, I think, to then be able to sell more stuff to more enterprises as well. So can you talk a little bit about that process of product development as it relates to these enterprise relationships and what that looks like internally from a company building perspective as well? This has been one where we've been fortunate. We've always been a very like developer and product heavy org, right? We are like 70, 75 odd people now. It's 
50 plus of them are engineers in product. In fact, I think like 45 are just engineers. It, it was not obvious that this was going to pay off uh, until it did, but uh, we were like very front loaded. We built a machine that was really good at building product, um, right? We were like really strong at building payments infra, like payments products really quickly. Once we started to get to a good spot with like bank partnerships and like regulatory licenses, we were in a position where we could, I think more than most, like iterate really quickly in like building new payments products, which is rare, right? It's like very difficult and slow and, and tough. And it, it took us a while to get there. And I think, you know, we got lucky that enterprises are demanding. They ask you for more things. We served, uh, like, like you know, we, we've done this a few times, which has been awesome. Uh, we've like served some enterprises in just like pay in with one payment method to start. And then they're like, this is great. This is awesome. This is working. We have four other payment methods that we want you to use. And we're like, okay, cool. Yeah. We, we, we can so like, they're, they're writing your product roadmap for yeah, you. Yeah, right. Uh, super interesting if an enterprise customer is like, we will pay you a large amount of money if you build X product for us and it works. Awesome. We, we will do that, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they're like, okay, cool. We're struggling with like X piece of reconciliation. Do that for us. We're struggling with payouts. Do that for us. So we've been lucky. Um, I think historically we've not been great when we've tried to be clever and we've tried to think of like what the market needs. Um, yeah. We've like had a few duds in terms of products uh, and that hasn't worked well. And not, not a new n notion, but listening to your customers and just building what they yeah. want has been like a winner. Yeah. So, so all of the products that you guys have built thus far, yeah. can you talk a little bit about what Stitch now offers and what you've built? Yeah, so we kind of um, bucket ourselves in maybe three ways to be a little uh, reductive about it. The first is pay-ins, just accepting money in general, right? Historically, as I mentioned, we start with pay with bank, uh, and that was kind of like our core product. Um, we've now expanded that, and basically, you know, any way um, you can pay in a market, we will accept. So we allow people to pay with bank, we allow you to pay with card, which is obviously incumbent in some markets, not all African markets. We allow you to do recurring debits, so the equivalent of like a gym membership or a cell phone contract once a month. We allow you to pay with cash, which is kind of a non-obvious one for maybe folks outside of Africa, uh, right? We'll allow you like the equivalent of like agency banking, where you can deposit cash at a retailer mm -hmm. or an ATM, will immediately reflect in your wallet. So full suite of pay-ins. Um, then the second piece is sort of in the middle, which has been surprisingly interesting, uh, is sort of around any sort of payments operations. Uh, so reconciliation, uh, wound all of your uh, accounts payables, receivables, how you manage your money. I think often overlooked, but it's just like a huge problem, right? If you are a large enterprise, you have you know 10 different bank accounts, you have you know 11 different payments providers, and they send you CSVs at different times in different formats. And, you know, it, it gets like very, very difficult to just manage all of that. And then thirdly, we do payouts, um, right? So that can be disbursements. So if you want to pay suppliers, employees, whatever that is, that can be refunds, right? Uh, if you're an e-com player, you need to refund people. Uh, or that can be withdrawals, right? If you're like a volatized player, uh, investments, crypto, savings, you allow you to, your users can withdraw from their wallet back into their bank account. End to end, we basically can handle any quote unquote money movement that an enterprise is trying to do. Yeah. I think as you talk about, you know, those three buckets and the range of products that you offer, there's, I think, this vision that's coming to the fore about open access and interoperability and you know, providing your customers with a portfolio of payment options. And I think it's very different from, you know, sort of the siloed, especially in the West, like card centricity, right? You're sort of building for, for one where there's the most volumes. And maybe it's a function of, I guess, the diversity of 
payments uh, in these markets in particular. You've talked a little bit about wanting to be this like next generation PSP or what the evolution yeah. looks like. And, and maybe there is a shift or maybe, you know, we're just applying this idea of a shift to African markets where we haven't talked about it as much. So can you say a little bit about your vision, I suppose, for what, you know, this sort of payment service provider PSP looks like in, in the African context in particular and how it may be different from, you know, what we've seen either in this market or sort of, you know, outside of these markets globally. This has started to play out in some markets and people are, are tackling like d different pieces in other markets. I really admire companies, for example, like Modern Treasury that are tackling like this middle like payments operations piece. And they're doing so in the US, which is a gigantic market. Um, you can kind of like focus standalone. Uh, like ov obviously there's great, you know, historical PSPs like Stripe and uh, RDN, um, as well as like slightly adjacent players like Plaid, right? And they all sort of focused on like different things and they're all like branching out a little bit more now, fairly far into their like journeys, you know, uh, 10, 10 plus years in some cases. I think that the like zero to one piece is still just not there in Africa yet, right? There is no easy way to receive money, manage money, pay out at all, right? You, you can't even like piecemeal like stitch together like a solution uh, to like get that to work at all. So I think a lot of things for us, you have to focus on the entire chain. It's not a matter of like, oh, we can capture more value because we can do the entire thing. It's that if you don't do the entire thing, you can, ca can capture no value. Like super non-obvious thing, for example, to do like cash. Our thesis is not that cash is going to be more prevalent in 15 years in Africa, right? Like why would we invest in something like that? Same thing as card, to be honest, right? I, I think actually it's like a common narrative, but like that Africa is like leapfrogging a lot of, you know, card being the prominent method. But we're still investing in those things because cash is still the dominant payment method. And if you are a foreign company coming into the market for the very first time and you're trying to deal with how are we going to allow end users to like give us cash to pay for our yeah. like American product is like insane. It's like unfathomable. But if you can say, hey, we will allow you to have like a little slot in your checkout page that says cash, to you it looks like a card payment. To you it looks like a bank payment. You don't need to worry at all about what that looks like. And then you don't need to worry about how that flows afterwards. Uh, we can really manage the full process for you end to end. You don't need to ingest like a different type of reconciliation from a different provider, then send it to a different bank account to do payouts from a different provider. We will allow you to do all of that. So I think that's where we started to land in terms of positioning in almost what we term as like open payments and trying to do the whole stack for someone. It, I think, allows us to have a lot more flexibility in terms of product because you just control it end to end. Uh, obviously, you capture uh, more of the flows and more of the value, but it also allows businesses to enter these markets a lot quicker. I think in many cases, this like will not be like a core market for people to start, but they have a thesis that it will be in the future. And if they can just really iterate really quickly, it allows them to kind of test out the markets and build more conviction and then invest further. Yeah. There's, a, I think, a story in the context of, you know, APIs as building blocks yeah. around the specialization, right? So I think that the example that I'm thinking of is Shopify using Stripe and why wouldn't Shopify just as a massive company build their own, yeah. right? But it's that Stripe is just, you know, a thousand times better at payments yeah. than Shopify and their specialists. Do you think about, though, you guys are doing so many different things, right? If you look yeah. at Paystack as, you know, quite focused on in the Stripe way, just yeah. cards, right? Do you think about how do you do so many things and do them so well? You've talked about like the technical complexity just of doing all of this stuff. Is that something that's concerning you or is it like 
in these markets, as you just said before, it is like a requisite thing to actually yeah. build all of these things because otherwise nothing works. And what choice do you have? It is concerning, right? It's uh, it's it's non-trivial, like absolutely for us as well to build different payments products. Um, right? You there there are some efficiencies, right? You you know settlements can look quite similar and cert- certain things you can replicate. But going from bank to card was non-trivial, right? It was like very, very different. Uh, I think we were even like naive uh, around how complex like the challenges of a different mm-hmm. payment method will be. Oh, and why is it why is it so different and complex? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I mean I think it, it's almost as is comparable to like entering a different African market, right? No payment method, especially in African markets, are standardized at all, right? So the, the entire stack of that. So that means like which banks you can talk to that will allow you to do some of these things is different case by case, right? We partner with different banks to do debits than we do with cash, than we do to card, than we do with bank, right? Like all of those are different partnerships. The regulatory and licensing requirements are different for every single person. So this is like before we're even building anything, yeah. right? Like how, how, how do you build this? Like the first six, nine, 12 months of that is like all different, right? Like what licenses do you need? Can you apply to get a license through a bank? Do you have to apply to the Reserve Bank? Do you apply to the Payments Association? All of those things are vastly different. And there's like obviously no playbook for this, right? We try to chat GPT, all of these things and get answers, but you, you cannot. And so all of that is very different. Uh, but then when you start to integrate, ultimately you, you probably end up integrating with some sort of financial institute in some way, shape or form. That's all different. Do you communicate with them via host to host? Do you do it via an API? Do you do it via sending CSVs on email, uh, right? Is like crazy things that we've seen. All of that starts to look different. Uh, so each integration is like very, very, very custom. And then the way that you handle like reconciliation after that is also not uh, right. So like all the settlements, everything is like very, very different. And then without doubt, everything has an absurd amount of edge cases. Calling them edge cases is maybe even generous because there's just like weird and wonky things that happen with every payment method that are just completely unique to that payment method. And you just, you typically just need track time, right? You just need to see a lot of payments and you're like, oh, wow, there's this weird thing that breaks every single time on a Thursday morning for whatever reason. Okay, cool, let's handle that. I think obviously that compounds when you like start looking at different markets too, right? I could have said all of that and just be speaking about one market, but it starts to get much, much harder. And so that's why I, th- I think it's, it gets super important to have the right kind of talent and expertise that can build these things, but also being able to like quite quickly share the knowledge within the team. Yeah, so you just talked a little bit about different markets, right? And mm-hmm. just going back to the growth story and this Series A extension as well, I think an interesting thread to pull on for me is this idea of the depth of the South African market Yeah. Um, in your ability as a startup to sell to enterprise and to launch different products quickly to sell to enterprise. But largely the story for African startups has been about market expansion sure. as well, right? Mm-hmm. As a way to sort of broaden the TAM and talk, talk about a, a much mm-hmm. bigger growth story. So how have you guys thought about, you know, actually the South African market is quite deep and you can build a really meaningful company just by focusing in South Africa with enterprises yeah. versus then uh, going out beyond the South African borders to capture other opportunity and, you know, in light of the complexity that you just talked about, how do, how do you think about that? I think, call it 2021, uh, you're totally right. There was this like huge narrative, which like we genuinely um, believed and maybe got caught up in uh, and like certainly uh, investors did as well. I think well-intentioned from all sides, there's definitely a massive opportunity in being Pan-African, right? It's just stupid hard, and it's going to take you like 10, 15, 25 years, right? It's going to take a really, really long time. And so I think 
sort of, you know, f fast forward a little bit uh, in a very different time where people are doing very different uh, sort of work when it comes to like diligence and working on market sizes. I think we we're fortunate that we had the benefit of having really good traction. So people were like, okay, something's happening here. This is interesting. We primarily only operate uh, in South Africa at the moment. Ultimately, the question gets asked like, what's the TAM, right? Like that's uh, any African founder ever um, yeah. uh, kn knows that this question comes up probably in like, you know, conversation one. And we sort of, I think, had the benefit of the doubt because we were growing very quickly that a lot of these like top tier investors were like, let's find out. It used to be pretty damn hard to say like, no guys, I promise you, like South Africa can be really big, right? And it just gets hand waved away. Like, no, I don't think so, right? You're like 60 million people. I'm you just, I know. Um, whereas now it was growing like really fast. It was really uh, surprisingly pleasant to have like a lot of these tier one VCs actually spend, you know, a few weeks uh, like doing uh, research calls and like really going deep. And most of them shook out and they were like, yeah, you can build a billion dollar business in just South Africa. It is actually surprisingly bigger than we thought. The financial services sector is huge, uh, but it is very incumbent. Obviously, that's not the ultimate ambition, right? Like, you know, you want to build the $10 billion business, $100 billion business. So, of course, you have to expand, right? We don't think there's, like, endless opportunity. But it was really interesting that people, like, spent the time now, and they were like, let's really deeply understand, yeah. like, where Stitch is winning, like, where they can continue to win and take share. And almost everybody shook out, and they were like, you actually can build a billion-dollar business in just South Africa, like, super non-obvious market. Like, I completely buy that narrative that you can't do that, right? That, like intuitively sort of makes sense but if you actually like look under the hood uh, tons of people sort of have done that which is really nice because that's like a little bit of a like you know tick you can check that okay this is interesting as is baseline what stitch is doing is interesting mm -hmm. of course we need to think about expansion what does pan-african look like what does other global markets look like super fun that looks yeah. super cool super exciting but baseline like if these guys just continue operating here for the next year two years Interesting. There's still yeah. good like room to grow, um, and that's been cool. And I think that's actually shifted like a lot of investor perception from that perspective. Yeah. Does it also take some pressure off of you to say like, we can expand when we're on really solid footing and and a more firm foundation than you yeah. know, I think some other companies we've seen. Yeah, I mean the Pan African narrative we we got very caught up in. Um, it's something we still believe in a lot, but not as frenetically. I think it was like, oh, we raised a Series A. We have to all the markets. Let's do it quickly. And you know, there was like investor pressure for that. There was pressure from us for that. And now I think it's a little bit more tempered, right? Now, definitely think about other markets. Have a strategy about that. But is it that you're led there by clients when is appropriate? You have these large enterprises here. A lot of them have pan-African ambitions. Awesome. That still like tracks right to the story. But like do it when appropriate, do it when you have a customer. You can do a lot of things in advance, like get your licenses, get your bank partnerships and stuff, but you don't have to go all out, all the markets kind of, you know, w without much thought. So I think the alignment uh, is a lot better because you can continue to see like, okay, there's still a path for a while here and then you can do other things in parallel. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to think about some meaningful percentage of the whatever 50 plus million dollars that you've raised is just going to go to licenses. Yeah, that, that <laughs> is an upsetting but true uh, story. I guess it's, it's a worthwhile investment, though, of course. Yeah, I mean, continually when we like, run the business, you realize like, shit, this is uh, uh, why payments businesses and fintech businesses are well capitalized, right? Mm -hmm. Because you need a lot of money. Uh, you need it for like everything, day-to-day -day operations. If there's a bug in your code, 
chances are you might have lost some money somewhere and you need to take a hit there. If there's mm. like licenses, you need to pay money. There's capital requirements. It's tough, but it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. This season of the flip is all about sharing season of the flip is all about sharing lessons and insights from some of the most experienced and esteemed founders from across the African tech ecosystem. And it's a mission for which we're proud to partner with Norskin twenty two to share wisdom and insights from the fund's unicorn board as well. We know that advisors and mentorship are an important part of the venture funding process. And throughout this season, we are speaking to and learning from the successful founders, operators, and investors from Norskin 22's unicorn board. In this episode, we're joined by Bernard Dalle, a former partner at the global venture capital firm Index Ventures. In 1997, I joined Index and have stayed with the firm until the end of 2021. During that time, I invested in a lot of companies and I've seen a lot of situations from M&A to IPO to success and some failure as well. And if I had to summarize my learnings, I would say number one is really focused on product market fit at all costs. It's learning from customers, from prospects, is to iterate until one, one comes to a commercially viable product. Number two is to build the right team intentionally to never compromise on cultural fit. Number three, I would say it's kind of silly, but it's don't run out of cash and be smart about your finances. The largest successes that I've seen at Index are actually companies that they may have raised quite a bit of money or not, but they were always building a, a business that wasn't consuming a ton of cash early on. Number four, as a founder, as a member of the founding team or the early team, I would say it's evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. And the founders are the number one salespeople for the company for a long time. And then finally, I would say it's build a business, develop a product and a service offering, find the right channel, find the right price points, develop your business model over time with the prospect of becoming profitable, I would say within two to three years. So just taking a step back a little bit, um, I want to talk about team and culture. Mm -hmm. This is something that I've gotten a chance to sort of see firsthand. I think for context, you and I met, I think probably 2020, mm -hmm. you had these lunches at Stitch where anyone could come. You still do it every day. You know, you've built this open office environment where people can come and work. And some people like myself have taken full <laughs> advantage of that. Yeah. I think it's really distinct, right? You're trying to be, in my opinion, at least like this node in the middle of an ecosystem, like literally right, stitching together the ecosystem yeah. um, in person as well. I want to talk about how that relates to talent as well. But before we do, can you just talk a little bit about the company building, the cultural element of Stitch and, and your vision for that or why you've done the things that you've done and how it sort of impacts the business objectives that you guys have? I guess some, somehow this started was uh, romantic in like a few ways. One... Um, I come from a gigantic Indian family, and I've been fortunate that the households I've grown up in have always been very central from like a community perspective, like people in and out 24-7. I remember having like friends over in certain points of time, and they were like, who are all these random people? Random people are in and out, and they're like, the gates just open, what's happening? Um, and so I've always loved and, and been guilty of not having any boundaries in terms of like, you know, we'll go to lunch and an investor will be there and a friend and a family member and a coworker. That's always been like an important thing for me personally. Secondly, I've, I, you know, I, I think at least for me, have been fortunate to spend a decent amount of time in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, and like actually seeing sort of some of the culture 
there. One of probably my favorite part, which is you know uh, commonly lauded, is how open it is. Uh, it's I would meet a random person you know who worked at X billion dollar startup. And you you know chat to them a little bit about some kooky idea, and they'd be like, "Oh, let me introduce you to the founder, to the CEO." And I'm like, "Of oh, this, like, Belinda, no way! Like, you can't use your social capital like that." Like, it's a, uh, and I, I think a lot of it's maybe let me just speak from South Africa's perspective, um, not be overly general, but it's like very closed off, right? Yeah. Like, people often don't want to spend their social capital. People don't want to sort of interact out of their sphere. I've always thought that's just such a massive thing that's been holding these ecosystems back. I think we do a very, very small part to help that. But that was a big piece about how we thought about hiring uh, people initially. It's like, how open are these people to like community? How open are these people to like a lot of this unknown? And we, we didn't deliberately do this, but like, you know, the first uh, four or five team members that joined, um, I don't know, three of them were actively dissuaded by friends and family to join, like, Stitch. Really? They were like, don't do it. Like, this is crazy startup. You're working in, like, a room in someone else's office. They have, you know, like, 12 months of, yeah. like, runway. What's runway? Yeah. This I, like, guy's walking around with no shoes yeah, on. Yeah, well, what's, what's happening? Why are they talking about things like the company will go out of business in 12 yeah. months? What are you doing? You're, like, in a good job. And I think weirdly counterintuitively, like, the people that were like, ah, I'm going to, like, this is cool. I'm interested, right? Like, the openness to, like, try something like that. And I think... It, that's been a very, uh, after like a, a point in time, you build a little bit of a critical mass where that becomes self-fulfilling, right? Yeah. And you, you, those people attract similar people uh, and you start to build that up. And I think we've been really lucky that we've been able to build up sort of people like that. And this openness has like attracted so many people. I can't tell you how many people have been totally disinterested in Stitch. And then we've said, come have lunch with us. And they've come once and you know, after the lunch, I'll get a phone call or a message and they'll say, are you guys still hiring? Really? And yeah, I, I can point to at least 10 examples in like a 70 person company that we've hired. Not e I mean, we've had other people that we haven't even hired uh, where that's happened like a ton. Yeah. Uh, so that's been great. Yeah. I mean, you guys have definitely built up a, a pretty good reputation in Cape Town, certainly as like a choice employer. And I look at you guys from the outside looking in and I wonder about to what extent is it, you know, you've always been relatively well-resourced. I think you're a, a good fundraiser, right? Maybe, you know, the uh, it's like, well, you shouldn't be having open lunch and getting all this merch and doing all of these things unless, you know, you, you have the money to do it and or, you know, you, you guys yeah. um, are in a position to create some traction. And I think that if you were looking at it from like an ROI perspective, it was it would pay off. But it sounds like also you're not really necessarily explicitly thinking about like, well, if we spend this much amount of money on lunch yeah. every day and merch every day that we're then going to be able to do this or that. I think the question I have for you, though, is if you can take me all the way back to the beginning, mm -hmm. right? You're sort of in this um, this virtuous cycle. But at the beginning, were you having to sell? Sounds like to some of those other people, you found some people that were open, open but were you also having to sell, especially in the South African context? Like we can build something meaningful. Yeah. You can, you know, earn startup equity that could be actually worth something yeah. and you should come do this crazy thing like how much of it was also like a in spite of the money or the resources or anything like having to sell and to pitch people to actually come and join you huge huge for for long i would say i don't know till at least uh timelines get blurry but till at least probably like we were 30 odd people maybe when which is about when we raised our a where we had a you know uh, a decent amount of capital at that point in time most people were like a really, really desperate, long 
sell. Uh, it's scary, right? Like no one understands what a startup is really. Uh, certainly no one understands what uh, equity is. No one has really made money in most of these markets from equity. There's like a few handful of people. So when you say, hey, we're going to pay you like a mostly market salary, but we're going to give you like a lot of equity, like in the really early days, yeah. people were like, yeah, but like, you know, e equity is not going to pay for, you know, my bond. Equity is not like, it's very difficult. And even people that didn't have obligations are just like, I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm not super sure. So at the beginning, I think it was like fortunate that we found a few people that were really quote unquote like startup, right? And, and did really value equity. And so that was helpful at the beginning. Um, and then after that, it was, you know, just a, a ton of uh, like relationship building. At the beginning, I was a bit more intense about you have to join here and now. I think I started to realize stage fit is a very real thing, right? Like not everybody wants to join the three-person mm -hmm. company. But there are, I also probably have like 20 examples of people that we had conversations with, you know, every three months for two years. And then, you know, eventually they joined. And those are some of the best people we have now. And it worked out great. The stage fit, like when we were a 30-person company, was much better for those people. And wherever we thought, you know, if there was really strong talent, we were very happy to have that conversation, uh, to like keep in touch, have them come over for lunch, have them work from the office, join hackathons. We send uh, tech updates too. Uh, so the oh, cool. equivalent of like investor updates, we send tech updates. We send those to like prospective engineers, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? The same way we send like investor updates to prospective investors to just keep people interested. And that's proven to be like really, really good. Because um, I think for like startups and things like this where they are high risk, Often people just need to build up conviction over time, uh, which has proven to be great. Can we tell the Junaid story? I think that's my favorite talent story. Maybe yeah. if we don't say who the investor was. Uh, no, you can. You're welcome oh, to. Yeah. You tell it. How? So, so maybe the the most high profile or the biggest hire that you made yeah. was what is he now? He's the president. Yes. Junaid Dadan, um, and he was not looking. Right. My no. understanding is he was not looking to leave Stripe, and Stripe was trying to recruit somebody who was your investor. Yes. Who took the call without any interest in going to Stripe. Yes. And then quickly turned it around to judoed Janaid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of our investors was being poached, headhunted by Stripe. Janaid was at Stripe at the time, so Janaid was trying to hire one of our investors. And uh, in a master judo class, um, our investor said he took the call. Uh, very nice, cool. Not interested, uh, but hey, you're you're in Cape Town. Why don't you go to talk to Stitch? These guys are doing cool things. And also, you know, it wasn't an instant thing. We uh, started it with lunch. We uh, met Janaid for the first time and we were still like 10 people. We didn't even mm -hmm. have a table. We were all just sitting uh, on chairs and slowly over a couple of months started to build up conviction. And yeah, I mean, he was super, super senior at, at Stripe. And eventually I think, uh, you know, tipped at some point where he was like, this is starting to get super interesting. Well, what, what's happening over here? This is also happening in, you know, an African market in South Africa. I'm like very curious to like what's happening. You know, it's an emerging market. There's not a lot of this happening in the space. And, you know, that that's like now one, one of many cases, but that was like really prolific for us at the time. Kudos to our investor for- When when they say actually like, when, that, the, you know, the meme, how can I be helpful, right? Yeah, like it's, that's like, a, it's like, it's like yeah, that. Get yeah, recruited yeah. and go and convince the guy who's trying to recruit you to join yeah, your portfolio. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so no, that, that's been super helpful. Just one thing that I think is really curious, you had told me as you guys were raising the Series A extension that this was a function of, really you know rapid growth but that the 
prior raises and the Series A even was a little bit more of you guys were still trying to find your footing yeah. in the market. You talked a little bit earlier about you know the startup focus versus enterprise. Yeah. I think all the while though you were still sort of investing considerably in talent, right? To, yeah. to the point that you just talked about a bit earlier. And I'm curious to know, was there always just this trust for, from you and maybe from your investors, especially those who, who invested at Series A when yeah. you didn't have as much traction? that like if you put enough smart and talented people in a room together, like you guys are gonna figure it out. Yep. Is, is that how it went or is that the sort of thought process at that time? Mostly, so I, I think the important call out is what we were investing in was like product and edge. So even to date, we have a very, very small like quote unquote revenue team, right? We have very few salespeople, very few customer success. Um, we continued, uh, like it was never obvious that we would, you know, just crack it, right? But, uh, you know, we always, always, always were very proud of and it was like well recognized that we had an exceptionally strong team and that was compounding. We were attracting better and better people, um, like the knowledge that was getting shared internally was getting really, really strong. And so we, we, we got to a point where we could prove, like we were, we were clever engineers and maybe product people. It's hard to say you're a clever product person if no one's buying your product. But we yeah. were like building things very fast in sort of a best-in-class developer or infrastructure way. And at the time, that was the bet. You know, there will be a need for payments infrastructure. There will be a need for these tools in the market. Who is going to do it? Stitch looks like a decent punt for that. Like, ob obviously not 100% that we would get the customers or would get the right fit. Um, but I think at the time, that was like really a lot of what was important in the market. Uh, I think, you know, this could have gone a thousand different ways. We, we are lucky that we sort of stumbled into a really good patch and we can just like continue to pull on that. Um, but I think it would have been sticky if we were investing heavily in sort of the like go to market or rev side, right? I think the thesis that like, the like best in class engineering and product team has a really good chance of winning, you know, this completely white space market. That's pretty compelling. Like hiring a 30 person sales team where you mm. have very nascent traction, like no one is building, buying your product, you're not having month on month growth. That's hard, right? To say like, we're gonna build a best in class machine, we're gonna get like invest in best in class partnerships with banks and licenses and regulators, and then we will find the product. like. Not guaranteed, but that's more compelling. I think we would have got a lot of pushback from our investors if we were investing in other areas of the business. And then I, I think one thing that is always fascinating to me about entrepreneurship in general is you went, you know, from when you and I met, it was a you know under ten person company. We were having lunch around the table of this size, right? Yeah. And then I, I guess you know two three years now, you're now what seventy plus people. Yeah. I'm curious just to hear a little bit about how you think about as a founder and sort of leader, that evolution from, you talked about like stage fit before for talent and you've sort of had to evolve across all of these different stages and, yeah. and how you think about what it means to go from, you know, zero to 10 to 30 to now 70 plus yeah. as, a, as a founder and as a CEO. How, how have you thought about and figured out how to do that? Probably not well at all stages. I still get uh, it itchy and want to be involved in tons of things that I think no one cares or wants me to be involved in. I don't know. I think increasingly this next phase that we're in 
Uh, well, it started really early. At some point in time, I, I wrote code. I don't think any of it exists in the code base anymore. And then at some point in time, I did all of the sales, and like now I do like I some, and I, I I get involved where needed. At this stage, I think probably most important and and where we are, and I guess my evolution, I think, is building out sort of that next layer. Right? We have like exceptionally strong leaders in the business across uh, you know their functions that have far, far, far superior understanding, autonomy, knowledge than I do in any of the functions. Uh, and I think it's actually like stepping off a little bit and being less of a blocker in some cases, being enabling wherever possible, which I think is often just not true for, for me. And I think I slow things down very often, but it's like finding that balance I think will be important. There's just too much going on, right? And I uh, probably interject myself unnecessarily in some cases. And so I think finding that balance in the next phase of like really allowing people and their departments and orgs to just kind of like yeah. run, uh, I think that's probably the next phase yeah. uh, for us. I imagine that it feels a little bit easier to do that knowing that you've hired, you know, high yeah. quality talent that yeah. you can trust and, yeah. and that is capable. Yeah. 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 That's a nice luxury to have, I would yeah. imagine. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah we're lucky. Yeah. And then as a, a sort of final question, just big picture We've talked about it a little bit, but you guys have some great traction now in South Africa. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot of white space we talked about across the continent yeah. as well as outside of it. Yeah. What does success or what is what is the vision for Stitch at this moment? What does that look like? I think there's tons of white space in the continent. I think for us, if we can start being, you know, in the near term, uh, the player that people look to when they want to enter the market for the very first time or when they're expanding throughout the market is super important for us, right? Like whenever you think about accepting payments uh, in the continent right now, we want to be your go-to call, right? Uh, in any way, shape or form, moving money at all, we want to do that. And I think, you know, you start to unlock a lot of possibilities and opportunities when you start to be able to work with one partner, one, one client across multiple markets, right? And you can start to do interesting things with cross-border flows. You can start to do interesting things in terms of like how those nodes are interacting with each other. So that's like a very important next step for us. Like Africa like has always been very prominent in our story and, and always will be. And I think, you know, you know, that's where we have right to play. I think that's where we have good like brand and understanding. But we've never wanted to like shoehorn ourselves into just this like African player. We have to just do this. We've actually had surprising interest in some more Western markets and some of our partners that we already work with have, I think it's just one of these things, right? Where uh, like we've built some solutions in a very African specific context that no one else has really thought about, not because we're clever, just because, you know, there are problems here. People have been like, oh, we, we have this problem in X Western mm. market. Like if you have this product there, super interesting for us. Yeah. Right? And it's just like, I think one of those like blind uh, areas for other people. Uh, and we've just been lucky that we've happened upon it. So we're, we're trying to be quite open in how we think about product development and expansion, but certainly always want to have a global view of these things. Most of our important uh, customers right now are like completely global. Um, so, so want to see what we can continue to do with them in other markets. When Stripe launched Payments Links, Patrick Collison wrote a thing on um, Hacker News saying like, I think it's going to become increasingly important for people to pay attention to what's happening in other markets. And he was like explicitly saying that they saw payments yeah. links in the paystack and Nigerian context, yeah. and then they realized like, oh, that's something that oh, could work really thing. well yeah, in yeah. the U.S. market. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's just for them was just having a view of what's happening in these other markets yeah. and 
the complexity in these markets might mean that it's uh, you know I'm I'm also very interested in the idea of what can the rest of the world learn from yeah exactly. Africa yeah is there anything else you want to talk about or should we leave it there nope cool cool thank you Justin. <laughs>